Welcome to the Alan Turing Podcast with James Turing and some of the UK's most exciting and forward-thinking business leaders. Today, Alan is famous as the father of computer science and co-breaker of the Nazi Enigma machine and has been celebrated by the BBC as the greatest person of the 20th century. But it wasn't always that way. At the time of his passing in 1954, Alan's life had been defined as much by the tragic way in which he was treated by the country he had done so much to help as it had by any of his work in mathematics or computing. Alan's family are keen to do their part in building the kinder and smarter world that Alan envisioned all those years ago, which is why we've launched this podcast series in which James Turing, the great nephew of Alan, will be speaking to some of the women and men shaping Britain today, covering a range of subjects from sustainability and mental health to inclusivity and innovation. First of all, just a few words from the organisations behind this series. The Turing Trust is a charity run by the Turing family. They refurbish used IT kit, install a range of brilliant educational software, and provide it to those who need it most, principally in rural African communities. Their vision is that one day every child will be able to enjoy the transformative power of technology. So if your business doesn't yet have a solution for reusing its old IT kit, please do get in touch. The other organisation behind this series is Boss Digital, a digital marketing agency that specialises in helping B2B and professional service firms generate more business online. We're incredibly proud to be helping the Turing Trust accelerate their impact. So to reiterate, if your company does not have a strategy for its old IT kit and are sending it into landfill, please visit the Turing Trust site today and they'll help you turn that waste into a tool that will transform the lives of thousands of students. Over to James. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. If I could just begin with you, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves to our audience, please. Hi, it's uh, Nick Proctor, founder, CEO at Amber. I started a business, I think it's 12 years ago now. 2009 was the the starting year. And I suppose more recently, we've been working together, um, Turing Trust and, and Amber, with our work, our mutual aims in Africa and, and displacing power into Africa. So I'm kind of quite excited to be talking to you today. Wonderful. Absolutely. Yes, me too. So could you also give us a little bit of detail as to what Amber Energy do on a day-to-day? Yeah, no problems at all. I mean, the world has certainly uh, changed dramatically since we started, but what we're trying to do hasn't done. We've been set up from day one to take businesses to net zero. Um, I suppose we're prouder, more prominent and louder about it now because it's something that people are listening to and something people are engaged with. What we're trying to do is build a cohort of businesses that are serious about net zero and want to get there by 2030. And we're looking to essentially create leadership in this space so that people have somewhere to look and some businesses as as examples that they can look to and say, ah, that's how you do it. And it makes business sense and it saves me money and it makes my properties worth more money. So our, our mission at the moment is very much building up that group of businesses, that cohort of businesses and steering them on a pathway uh, towards net zero with the journey that will take them there by 2030. So it's, it's quite exciting for us because we've been able to really evolve our business from different focuses much earlier on to a point in time now where I don't want to say the word people are getting it. I mean, let's be honest, it's a climate emergency. It's a very important thing. So to be saying that we're getting it now is is probably a bit loose, but, but in a way that's kind of how people are feeling. They're starting to understand the problem, understand it's a big enough problem to pay attention to, but also I suppose be excited about the innovation that they can put into their businesses and into their buildings to change their own landscape 
of how much they spend and, and how much they're using and how much carbon they're emitting. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time and we're looking to how we can have wider impacts as well. Um, so some of the work we do, is, as you know, takes us into a space where rather than just offsetting and offsetting and not really knowing what's happening with, with those offsets, we like to partner up with the Turing Trust and, and with some other partners and really build something that, that has an impact. And, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, good time to go into a little bit of background on the sort of partnership with Power to Africa and the Turing Trust. Could you just tell us a little bit of an intro? So, well, firstly, how you guys came up with that idea uh, and also kind of a few of the impacts today? Yeah, absolutely. Let's be honest, we're proud of this partnership. We're proud of Power to Africa. and We're proud of what we do with the Turing Trust. Going back a bit of time, so going back to around about 2018, we started to look a little bit ahead and, and realize that the type of projects that you could do in the UK for offsetting or for having an impact, a sort of wider social impact with uh, you know fundraising and, and other aspects didn't necessarily lead to anything that was something really tangible. So to give you an example, we all know that you can plant trees at the moment in order to reduce your carbon. And you could plant a tree and it might take a hundred years before that tree has removed an element of carbon from the atmosphere. And that, that's good. That, that's a good thing to be doing. And it's good to see lots of people getting involved in that. But what we were looking at was how can we have a, a kind of quicker and more prevalent impact? And, and how can we maybe impact society and people as well as the planet? And what we thought and what we came up with was, well, look, there's a billion people certainly at the time there was anyway, and I know that number's changing and we're, we're proud of that, but a billion people without access to power in the world. And for us, when we were sitting at work thinking about the idea of no power, we then immediately thought, well, with no power, you've probably got not got great access to opportunities. You've probably not got great access to education. And the real belief that we had at the time was that if you had power and you had education, you could ultimately find ways to carve your future, but without them, it would be fairly impossible. So on that reflection, we decided to do something about it. And we decided that we would create Power to Africa and we would essentially try to find ways in which we could create small little epicenters where people had access to clean power and education where they could change their future. And since we came up with the idea, we've met a bunch of really cool people along the way, um, yourself, of, of course, and the, and the Turing Trust, but also in Bernie Hollywood as well, because um, Bernie really much uh, you know, t teed us up with yourself as well, actually, and, and, and joined, joined up some of these forces for us. And he also organized a great trip where a couple of people at Amber uh, I didn't go, but a couple of people from Amber went and went around some of the locations that we were considering to put our, put our projects into. We funded our first project, which was a cyber cafe in around about 2018, late 2018. And it wasn't a particularly big project. You know, I'll be, be very honest about it. It was about 5,000 pounds to build the school. And then there was an existing solar array that we were able to connect up to. And so it cost a little bit of money to kind of make it all work. And then there was the case of, okay, this is great. We haven't got any computers. 
So then we had to work out how to get some computers that would then go into that cyber cafe and allow people to, to attend. And that's when it all started to come together that we could build the schools and attach solar and help with the renewable powering of these schools. But we needed to find a way also to give computers to people that would allow them to actually do something once they got there. So that's really where we, we stumbled upon the Turing Trust and started to think, actually, there's a really, really cool way to collaborate on this project and for us to find the ways to, to power um, buildings and set the buildings up and then to use the Turing Trust to get computers that aren't being used anymore in the UK into those schools so people could study. And that was the start of it all. So since then, I think we're on to double digits now for projects and, and very much looking forward to doing the next, the next 10 and, and, and hopefully getting the computers in there as well at the same time. Absolutely. No, it's fantastic to hear it from your perspective. Yeah, it's uh, really comes to see from our perspective what you can do with less love technologies. They're a little bit dated, but also how you can kind of leapfrog the whole energy question by jumping straight into renewables, which frankly makes things a bit easier with a little bit of uh, technical difficulties along the way, of course. But uh, yes, fantastic. So the next thing I wanted to ask you, Nick, was just if you could give me a little story of potentially a, a formative experience in your earlier years that led to you pursuing this particular career path. Yeah, I suppose it's a big question, isn't it? Why, why did you, career path being, why did you start a business and, and grow a business rather than work maybe for someone else, I suppose, is a big question that. And I, I sometimes ask myself that, actually, <laughs> depending on how the week is going. Um, I can't imagine myself doing anything, anything else really now. So when looking back and trying to work out what the equation was, in my eyes, it, it wasn't one thing. I remember the trigger, but it wasn't one thing. The, the sort of backstory was as a kid, I wanted to be a vet. Then I was too squeamish to be a vet, was really into animals, was quite geeky actually, you know, really liked, um, numbers and data and, and, and all of those good things. And as I said, veterinary direction wasn't for me. I think I would have passed out the first time at seeing an animal and having to do something with it. But when it came to kind of pre-university, what you do, I, I took a gap year, went and did a diving conservation with a company called Coral Key Conservation, which was set up by David Bellamy. And that was really inspiring. That, that's something I always think about when I think about why I've done Amber. And the reason was, was that we were surveying coral reefs and talking about how coral reefs were changing, how the local fishermen were destroying the reef and we were trying to educate them. And there were some really profound moments of going into those schools with the Fijian children and talking to them about the conservation work we were doing. And although we were quite young, you know, we were only sort of 18, 19, it really lives with me today about sort of how they were living, how they perceived the world and how they were really, really quite positive about the direction of travel and how their change to how they were going to fish was going to allow them to preserve the reef. And they understood that that's where their, their food came from, basically. And over time, as I went into my initial career path, which was actually into the world of banking, I couldn't help but feel quite a long way from my purpose. And when it got to 2009 and the banking world was somewhat being slapped in the face by Joe Public and, and quite rightly so, because there were some, some poor practices going on. You may or may not remember, but 
computers and TV screens and various things were getting thrown through the window at Bishopsgate. And I think that that was enough for me to think, actually, I want to be doing something that has a real purpose that fulfills me and, and makes me feel that I'm having a positive impact on things. And it, it kind of took me full circle to that feeling right back at being at that school and educating those children and thinking, yeah, I want to be a bit closer to that. So the sort of meet in the middle was, okay, so where can you combine your knowledge of businesses? I studied business economics and finance at university. So, so where could I sort of take the, the knowledge I'd built up into a practical environment where I was going to have a positive impact on, on the planet ultimately? And energy was where I, where I landed. And, you know, they say the rest is history, but, but really it's been a, a hard slog of very much trying to get people to understand that having a positive impact was going to be, I suppose, good for their bottom line as well as being good for, for the wider uh, social impacts and, and for the environment as well. So, yeah, as I said at the start, very glad to see now that we've not only got the sort of the red tape coming in closer and taxation for carbon coming in closer, but we're also seeing now that the cost of borrowing money, the cost of capital, cost of equity has actually gone up now substantially if you're not doing your your part. So everything's gone in the direction of travel to support the equation of we need to remove carbon. So, so it's, it's a great time for us now to, to actually all be pushing forward onto some of these initiatives and, and making a bigger impact. Exactly. No, certainly as it should be. Um, which I'm very glad to hear. Wonderful. Um, and secondly, I wanted to ask you sort of a, a challenging period in your working life, uh, probably a bit before people were quite as focused on the climate emergency as they are now, uh, but particularly how that ended up changing the ways that you manage and lead others. Wow. Uh, yeah, another big question. Um, you're throwing them down. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll, I'll try my best. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to think about which of the experiences you go through when you we start a business and grow one that are, I suppose, the most profound in, in, in terms of how you end up leading other people. Um, I mean, the biggest growth I've had has actually been during the COVID period. So I'm going to talk about that and not be shy of the idea of talking about a, a kind of recent period of COVID where people will reflect on that with me and know how that felt. And I think realistically, it was a very, very difficult time to run a business. I think running a business is a lonely thing anyway, for those that run businesses, but running a business during a period of time in which there's a little bit of kind of high alert and, 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 and a line that's quite close to chaos. So there's a theory here of it's, it's fine to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. It's fine to be outside of your comfort zone. But there becomes a point where the state can get quite close to chaos. And what I mean by this is that there's only so much in a given week in which you can actually mitigate risk, plan around things, control things, and, and kind of feel that you've got things in order as you come into the weekend. And during the COVID period, there were many occasions where we were working ridiculous hours because our customers really needed us to help them they had to shut down their businesses and their businesses were left then with energy consumption still running. And so we started delivering additional services and, and, and very much running very thin, but we didn't furlough anybody during that first period. So we were very much working extra hours. Our cost base wasn't being reduced and it was highly stressful because everyone was feeling a little bit panicked about the additional work. 
And I think over that period, I, I grew a tremendous amount because I very much had to become a new type of leader. I had to become somebody that would find a way in the virtual world to give people the reassurance that somebody, a figurehead was there delivering change and growth for the organization or, or at the very least looking after the place and making sure that, that it was going to be there um, when they came back and turned the lights on six months later. That was not an easy thing to do. And I found myself really digging deep personally to find the energy and the courage sometimes to, to go into the week and be that positive, strong figure for people to look to and get courage from. And I, I remember when I first started Amber, I remember saying to somebody, what, what, why did you start it? And, and are you enjoying employing people? And I remember saying right back then, I had no intention of employing people. I have a hundred people more or less now. And the, the two, the two people that I, I suppose the one I once was and the one I am now are a long way apart and actually looking after people now and growing them and growing their careers is, is a really, really important thing to us at Amber and, and something that we, we take a lot of pride in. And during the COVID period, we weren't really able to do that. The, the focus was on, let's just keep everybody's jobs. Let's just make sure that everybody's still here in a year's time. Let, let's get through this period. Let's dig deep and make sure we don't have to make any redundancies. And, and that's hard because the people that work for you then during that tough year, I think they find it very difficult. They find that's a bit different to what it's been in the past. You know, there were, there were no sort of real big snazzy parties or going out for drinks after work or a game at the pool table where people could share with each other. It was a lonely period where nothing was going on and there was no career development. So to try and inspire and motivate the organization that we're going in a direction of travel that's worthwhile staying on the ship for is a very, very difficult thing to do. So I found that a profound period of time that, that really changed me as a leader and matured me quite a bit as a leader and made me I'd like to say a little bit more data-led in terms of how I now run the organization but also more forthcoming as a leader in going out and speaking to people and and setting up events to speak to people and um, I do a video each week now as well to, to talk to the organization and, and, and things like that you know feeling a little bit more comfortable as the main person of the organization for people to look to if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And also really refreshing to hear that, you know, honesty can be the best policy, it sounds like, um, certainly kind of bringing that just personal approach to understanding what the rest of your team is going through. Yeah, I mean, everyone was going through something. And over time, you, you sort of realized that that wasn't unique to COVID, that mental health, um, feelings of anxiety are, are regulars. And they're not things that exclude themselves from impacting people at the top nor excluding themselves from impacting people at the bottom you know every, everybody is impacted in some way by their mental health and i think we've just become an organization that are on that journey of being more comfortable talking about how we feel and if we're feeling anxious about how we're going to handle that and if we're feeling a little about the loop with things how we feel about that and i think that's really really important in this new virtual world because it's quite an, an imperfect world, the virtual world, and making sure that we don't lose that human touch and that we're in touch with how we feel um, is certainly something that we need to, to manage. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't imagine any scenario in anyone's life prior to this where someone would say, let's have a 
a kind of virtual coffee and I'll tell you how I'm feeling. You know, you'd always say, can we meet up for a cup of coffee? And you'd sit down face to face and that's when you'd feel comfortable sharing how you felt. So to do it virtually, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very different thing. It is. Uh, and hopefully something that won't necessarily last forever. Um, but if I might push you to make a prediction for the future, that's potentially not about how much of our lives will be spent on Zoom calls, uh, as much as many people have uh, posed their thoughts about that recently. What would you say might change your market or indeed the broader business landscape and how potentially we might prepare for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, fir firstly, I would say that I believe that uh, when we're all a bit older and we're sitting in our rocking chairs and reflecting of, of the lives we had is that we'll probably be a little bit embarrassed about how we lived our lives when we were younger. And what I mean is, is that I think it will be quite socially unacceptable when I'm 80 to eat the amount of meat that we ate and to travel with the type of cars we had and to travel in the way we did around the world. I think we'd all reflect on that and, and be somewhat embarrassed by that. And I think what's interesting at the moment is there's still a fight on our hands between people that seem to proudly eat more meat than they can manage and travel more broadly in the biggest petrol car that they can manage as well. I think they'll look back and <laughs> reflect and think, oh, blimey, I was quite, quite crazy doing that. But right now we're going through a, a decade that will determine a lot about the future. So I think we will see in this decade huge transformational change uh, a huge amount of money is clearly coming into environmental change and shift. What we can now look to see is that by 2030, a, a large proportion of, of businesses will be net zero, that a large number of homes would also be net zero, that we would have retrofitted a huge amount of buildings and that transport will be well on its way to feeling like a, a population of electric vehicle drivers and so forth. The, the, the biggest stuff to determine is is harder. And, and what I mean is, is that the challenge of electrifying heat and solving the heat equation for how we get to, to no carbon in, in heat um, is something that's a, a bit of a harder paradigm to work out. I, I can't seem to configure whether hydrogen will come along and, and get there quick enough or whether we end up with quite regular district heating systems in place and air source heat pumps everywhere. But that part I've I've not I've not quite worked out. Well, I'm glad to say that our office is loving our air source heat pumps so far. <laughs> that's, that's good. I mean, it's good to hear that the technologies are starting to make their way around. Um, the sheer mass that we need to do this on is is the frightening thing, right? And trying to work out what the market signals and, and invest in is going to be key. I did notice that the PM had sort of pulled back on the heat pump investments he was going to make. So uh, I'm hoping that for COP26, we see a little bit more of a commitment on things. Absolutely. No, we uh, we certainly need it. So uh, I think we'll all be kind of pushing as much as we can to make sure that those commitments do get made and become more than pledges. Um, and I think perhaps that's something that Amber Energy are doing. You, you guys are certainly, as far as we can see, leading the charge in that sense through the Power to an Africa initiative. So yes, uh, in case anyone's interested in looking a bit more in detail at some of the projects that me and Nick have worked on in the past, please do check out uh, www.power2africa.org. That's the number two. Um, where you'll be able to see some of our labs starting in Kenya and then moving over to Malawi, particularly with some of the, our different solutions ranging from sort of desktops powered by solar energy to tablet-only classrooms with projectors and things like that. But hopefully there'll be many more to come. Uh, so yes, please do get in touch with myself or Nick if you have any more questions about it. Um, and Nick, if I may add, one more question would certainly be 
I think, of interest. But you guys had quite a different model when kind of looking to fund P2A. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we started back in the day with just our own funding, really. We were doing golf days and things to raise money. And then over a period of time, we started to work out how we might be able to twin businesses, projects. And so the most recent chapter has been businesses that really want to have that social impact and want to get involved in in building a school, installing solar, or funding something specific, there's kind of two routes. One is to essentially chip in with other companies. You can kind of buy credits and the credits will allow us to, to fund a project with a number of different companies and we'll then attach those different companies to that one project. So it could be you know, a fairly big project of say 50,000 pounds investment going to impact a thousand children a day or something in their studies. That type of thing might require more than one company to get involved. But alternatively, an individual company can just come and speak to us and say, look, we've got this type of budget. We're looking to do something. What can we do? We want it to be just our project and we can do something in that way. What's really quite exciting now that I've not actually shared with you, so a bit of an exclusive, um, is that we can actually now get the projects accredited as offsetting projects. So if someone's looking to fund a project and wants to get carbon credits from the project itself, then we can get the gold standard to uh, essentially accredit the project to say that that project is achieving the carbon offset to the global standards. And that means that someone in the UK that, that needs to achieve their carbon aims can do so through this route as well. So quite, quite an exciting exclusive there for us is that we can now uh, get a, a multitude of benefits from from the same funding. Absolutely. No, I think that's absolutely key to it. Um, certainly being able to kind of show the direct impacts that are made uh, and make sure those benefits are truly tangible and you can kind of see them back from where all the funding came from is key. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, and you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you soon and talking about some more projects. Fantastic. Thank you.